and welcome to this week's episode of Halfway Planet. I'm Lawrence Brown. I'm Sarah Cantrell. And this week we have a very special guest over from my homeland, uh, Mr. Fraser McAlpine, the BBC's own Mr. Fraser McAlpine. And uh, he is the writer of Stuff Brits Like. It's a, a popular book uh, that is currently being toured around Indiana, or I suppose Indianapolis and uh, uh, Bloomington, mm -hmm. to be more precise. Um, as we speak, and uh, Fraser's going to ask, uh, answer rather, one or two uh, questions with us here today. So, welcome uh, to the show, Fraser. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. No Yay. problem. Yeah, and so we've been, we've had the joy of, of reading uh, through the book here in the last uh, many recent days, um, and it's, it's obviously something that appeals not only to, to my American readers or mm. listeners in this case. Uh, but also to me as a Brit who's been away and, and forgets most of the, the stuff <laughs> even existed. Um, one thing that really struck me, and I think the wife as well, as big fans of Doctor Who, we actually went straight to that, that sort of particular section. Uh, because a few weeks ago we tried to give our best sort of synopsis of what Doctor Who is and what it sort of means to the British people. Mm. In... as, as as briefly as you can, how would you sum up or how would you ex explain Doctor Who to somebody that's not uh, as familiar with it? Essentially, the main character in Doctor Who is uh, an alien man who is also British from a race of aliens who are also somehow British <laughs> who travels time and space in a British police box that is supposed to be a shape-shifting spaceship and he picks up people along the way who are nominally British, but he is somehow more British than they are, even though he's an alien. And they have adventures. And he travels the universe, telling, putting things right that are wrong, on his own, like a Victorian missionary would have done. Um, and, and, and in a sense, that's the most English form of travel internationally that there is. So it, it works exactly the same way in space. And if you think about the American model for science fiction, that's based on things like Star Wars and Star Trek, where whole communities are uh, engaged in an activity, whether it's fighting the Empire or, in the case of Star Trek, exploring the stars, representatives of each nation of Earth, all working together. And that's the American model. In a spaceship, I might add, that actually works. Yes. Whereas in Doctor Who, <laughs> it doesn't work because he <laughs> built it. Essentially, he's modified it himself, just like you know like the English inventors do. And he, and he wanders around telling everybody what they're doing wrong with their lives and how they need to improve. So he's, he's a, a missionary. He's an old a Victorian missionary. But he's a nice missionary. Right. <laughs> Sometimes, most of the time. But that's the demeanour. And that's why he wears so many of these Edwardian frock coats. And, you know, he's always dressed like somebody out of time because he's this paternal, you know, influence. That's, that, that's who he is. Yeah, and I think that touches on something that uh, we, we tried to cover uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago when we talked about whether Doctor Who could work as an American story, but I think it has such a, a quintessentially British quality mm. to it that mm. it, it would almost be impossible to replicate it in the exact same way here in the US. I just don't think there is a model for one American guy going around fixing stuff in, the, in quite the same way. That haughtiness is, is unique to, to the British the way that everybody understands that British people travelled the, the world, you know, and tried to, to correct the, 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 the things that, that the British felt were wrong about the whole world. And in a way, it, it models the British imperial instinct, but in a quite charming way because he isn't invading. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's helping and he's fighting off invaders. And that's the only way the story works. But that, that's why I think he's, the, he, it's so popular around the world is because 
he is he's he's a British archetype. Everyone understands that character as being a British guy, even though he's nominally an alien. Right. Yeah, it's true. And uh, I think we we were speaking about this before. We're going to put you on the spot slightly here, and and this might this might tell us when you first uh, how you grew up with Doctor Who. Sure. To be blunt, who is your doctor? My doctor is, well, up until very recently, it was Matt Smith. Hmm. But it was Matt Smith because Matt Smith was doing Patrick Troughton, the second doctor. And Mm -hmm. my... I grew up watching Tom Baker, so I, this is a really complicated answer, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Essentially, I grew up watching Tom Baker, and then that made me want to explore the past of Doctor Who. And at that time, the only way you could do that was by reading the novelizations of previous Doctor Who adventures. And you still can't watch a lot of the Patrick Trout second Doctor adventures because those tapes <laughs> were wiped. But I loved those ones the best. He's, he's amazing. And the, what, the yeah. clips I've seen make me love him the most. And so when Matt Smith arrived, he was doing a kind of Patrick Troughton take on the Doctor, but also, exactly, uh, the, the, yeah. I can't explain the <laughs> movement that Tara it, was yes, just doing. I was flailing my arms and, and well. flopping around. And, and his face looks like slightly an alien face. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's a, a handsome man, but he's not David Tennant handsome. He's not attractive. <laughs> he looks true. like She'll he's agree got with you on a kind of <laughs> pelvis at the bottom of his face there's this big big old chin poor Matt sorry no, Matt well it's I mean he doesn't do him any harm and he is a handsome man but he also looks a bit like an alien so it works so yeah it was it was Matt Smith I'm really really enjoying Peter Capaldi as the 12th Doctor we are too, we are too I think yeah. he's smashing it out of the park yeah. but but I so for a long while yeah but, but really Matt Smith is, is the man who resurrected in me a lot of my childhood love of reading those those Patrick Trout stories and all of those those sorts of things and he does carry lots of bits and bobs of all the other doctors with him so yeah I really like Matt Smith now it's funny you should bring up Pat Troughton, um, especially the early Doctors, because we actually have a friend. Uh, I think this is why you were laughing a minute ago. Uh, wasn't yes. We have a friend, <laughs> an American friend here, who lives in Fort Wayne. He'd never seen any Doctor Who, including mm. the new Who, and he dis- decided to start at the very, very beginning. Wow. Yeah, going back to good 1963. Man. Very good man. He called me the other day. He, uh, This is Greg, by the way, if Greg's listening. He reached, uh, just the other day, uh, Peter Davidson, Peter Davison's final episode, Caves of Androzine, right. in the storyline, and is now getting into the Colin Baker years. I gave him some mm. warning about, <laughs> yeah. about what's we coming. We really did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that said, before we go any further with that, he even went so far as to find the audio from the missing episodes and listen. Right, they're all on yeah. YouTube, aren't they? As and well. he watched the stills and everything. Yeah. Very... Very, very intense diligent. and dedicated. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes me happy that he's so dedicated to that, and it's sort of in in a way, in this sort of twenty first century way, he's he's in for a real treat for what comes after the classics. Not to disparage the classics, they're just very much of their time, I suppose. Yeah, and and this is going to really sort of I don't know. I hopefully hopefully Greg, this is going to really light up your world, and I'll be there. To watch uh, the episode Rose with you yes. when we reach that point, that would be very exciting. Yeah. But I had a very, a very dim- different experience the first time um, that I watched some of the old Who. Mm. Um, I really hated it mm. so much so that I would not watch New Who for years um, <laughs> Where afterward. Did you start? Where did you start? I I started with it was the Ark the Ark in Space. Right, yes. right, right. So that's Tom Baker. Okay. Yeah, it is. And actually, I really appreciate Tom Baker now. But at the time, I had absolutely no context whatsoever, and all I saw was just a very slow progressing story. Um, And so I actually, again, we we had an argument. It never happened again until Rose. (laughs) And so my question to you, knowing Greg's background and my background, 
Where would you start with somebody in America who has never seen Doctor I, I would, Who before? I would start with Rose. I, the reason I know that I, I, I'm so quick to answer that question is I actually genuinely had this conversation with a young man earlier today in the library at... Westfield. Westfield, sorry, thank you. Uh, the library at Westfield, uh, who said he'd never watched Doctor Who, and I said it's, and he didn't want to have to deal with 50 years worth of old yeah. stories. And I said, start with Rose and work your way forwards from there. It's still 10 years worth of stuff, mm-hmm. but th- they, they throw back enough to the classic series. And I think you, Lawrence, you're younger than me, aren't you? So mm-hmm. I don't, do, you re- do you remember Doctor Who being on Saturday nights? Yes, I grew up actually in the, the, the latter stages of Colin Baker. Right. I really got into Sylvester McCoy at the time. Uh, despite, I think my parents, uh, they, they were not a, a big fan because mm. he wasn't Tom Baker, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up with, with that. Because it, you also, you'll remember that Doctor Who was an institution. It was mm-hmm. unthinkable that it wouldn't be on on a Saturday night at some point. It just, it was just, it was just there. Yep. And that's, that in a way explains the, 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 the amount of time it takes to tell some of those early stories. And, you know, because they're part of an, an unfolding half an hour long space narrative that you know that that that, that, sl- that slowly unfolds in the modern era when you can watch whole series of a thing in one sitting it doesn't make a lot of sense the way those shows work and obviously as you're and you're right the, the pacing is very different to what we've come to expect mm-hmm. so i think i think you start with rose because you've got christopher eccleston there who is, who is a, brilliant he is brilliant it's an it's a astonishing performance that whole one one season where he is He's as grumpy and as stern as the first Doctor. Mm-hmm. He has elements of playfulness of the second Doctor, which, you know, as we said with Matt Smith, come back more thoroughly. He has, you know, he has the action movie army type elements of the third Doctor. Because the third Doctor is an incredibly authoritative presence. And the, the ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston, is like a U-boat captain. Mm-hmm. You know, he's really, he really has that authority. You know, and less of the whimsy of the, and the kind of the, the, the craziness of the fourth Doctor on the intense charisma of the fourth fourth doctor but you know but he summarizes enough of what was great about the classic doctor who amazing okay we're going somewhere with this it's great just and and it's all summarized in that one line in rose which makes you think this is all going to be fine where she says how come you've got a northern accent and and he says (laughs) lots of planets have a north not all planets have a north you'll note lots of planets have a north a good distinction (laughs) yes yes I like that now not to uh, cut away from Doctor Who because I could talk about it for three hours Um, not that we have that time but but sticking with television and and in the book you you reference the fact that Saturday Night Entertainment has a a very specific um, sort of uh, way of of, uh, presenting itself yeah drive specific remit Yeah. Mm -hmm. whereas when you get to the Sunday they they deal a lot in sort of historical terms Mm. um, for again a very specific psychological reason and and I think he had he wanted to bring up something about the yeah. antiques road show well okay so that was my favorite part of the book by the way mm. um, because antiques road show is certainly a guilty pleasure of mine as well sure. but it happens during the day here okay. in the United States it's daytime watching for the people who don't have jobs which right, doesn't right, happen right. often so it's just the old ladies and you know the people who are into soap operas which of course that's a very different thing for you guys as well of course yeah, yeah. Um, because again, all of that is daytime TV for us. Yeah. So um, I was actually wondering, um, and this is kind of getting off topic from what I'm telling you, but um, as I was reading that part, I was wondering what your particular Sunday night pleasure was. Um, I I uh, 
inevitably, uh, my whole family ended up watching Call the, Mi Call the Midwife. It was exactly the right show for the age of my children who are heading into teenage years. And it's just enough kind of grit and stuff that, that, that they enjoy. That, that, and they're not up late enough to watch Downton Abbey, which is on nine o'clock. So that's usually when we're starting to think about getting them to bed. So Call the Midwife, which was on sort of, I think, about half seven, eight o'clock. And it's it's what I call in the book Sunday Night Nostalgia TV. Right. <laughs> which is essentially just, it's about things that happened in the past. So it doesn't reflect too badly. It doesn't remind you of your the grind of your daily life. It doesn't make you think about emails and reports or things that you've got to do at work tomorrow. It just, you're able to watch it and go, oh, wasn't it funny the way they used to do that? And you can get caught up in the dramatic events, but you are also perfectly aware that things are not like that anymore. Um, and isn't that good? And certainly in the case of Call the Midwife, isn't that great? Because because women are not having to give birth under these, under what are, you know, incredibly difficult circumstances. And so the whole family watched, watched Call the Midwife. And, and in fact, we, we sort of downloaded it and watched bits that we'd missed and it became a real a real thing in our house. So I'd have to say that, that one particularly. Wonderful. So what do you think about the, you know, again, the difference here when it comes to those types of shows and how um, the Sunday night watching and also, like I said, the things like Antique Roadshow, um, the, um, I just said it. What's the word? Down to No, uh, the, um, oh my goodness. Why am I spacing this? I don't know. It's probably because I had Bailey's and coffee. It probably is that. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, um, soap operas, yes. Ah, okay. okay. So, oh, yeah. so how do you feel about the difference between the soap operas and the antique road shows, those types of shows being on during the day when almost nobody watches TV here, yeah. as opposed to in the UK where it's like, you know, million a, a lot of yeah. people yeah. view them, yeah. It's a really interesting thing because I, the way that I've written about soap operas in the book is as if I've we are witness to the planning meetings in which these enormous cultural events, as far as the British are concerned, were first conceived. So there's the there's a pretend first planning meeting for the Archers, but it's one of those mm. slightly comic conceits in which you think they know what The Archers is going to turn out to be. And what, what I should say is that The Archers is the longest running radio uh, soap in the UK and it's enormously popular. It's on Radio 4. It's, the, it's a story of farming folk which is supposed to also contain information that is of use, genuine use to real farmers as well. And it's been going for, for uh, 60 years or something and uh, it's, it's still very, very popular. So it's, it's an element of, uh, you know, describing why anybody would think that The Archers was... was was important if you didn't know anything about the archers and i did the same thing with coronation street and i did the same thing with eastenders which are the mm -hmm. big three soaps and i think i think the important thing uh, they each have an important different thing that they do the archers is is uh over the years has become this this national treasure and it, it, it reinstates certain rural uh certainties about the way the certainly the english landscape works and the english think a lot of themselves as being within rural um as a rural nation even though we've got massive cities and all, the, all of that there is a, there's a lot about the English countryside and, and, and it's why stuff like fox hunting became a, a national debate that everybody had an mm. opinion on because everybody places themselves slightly in the heart of the, the British countryside the English countryside the, the, the classic stereotype of the, the English village with the cricket green and the pub and the rolling hills and all of that and the archers takes place actually in that environment then when you get to Coronation Street, although it's a metropolitan environment, it's working class people talking the way that working class people talk. And it's a drama played as a comedy. 
um, so that there's lots of funny lines going around. So it's 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 to do with the quality of the writing. So even though the storylines often veer way into what I would say is American soap tropes. Right, so very melodramatic. Yeah, yeah. But weird things happen, and, but not not quite. You are my, you know, I'm my own sister or anything like that. Right, right. right. Yeah, big yeah. stuff happens, but the, the quality. It's all about the characters, mm-hmm. and they are they're set within a working class environment that is immediately recognisable to anybody from the north. Right, and that's a big. I mean, you you understand that, Lawrence, because you are sure. from the north. You would say that was correct, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's EastEnders, which tried to do the similar thing as Coronation Street but lost the humour a little bit along the way and mm-hmm. it became about the gritty reality of life in London and it's just, that's actually drama played as drama and they're trying to deal with serious issues and all of that and it's, the reason those those things are on in the evening is that they couldn't be on in the middle of the afternoon because of what's actually happening in the soap. Mm-hmm. You know, they you, and they don't, although their storylines are far-fetched sometimes, what they aren't is you know, silly far-fetched. There, there's heroin right. addiction right. and crack and prostitution and, you know, and it's, it's, it can be an under... It's not just banging someone over the head with a steel bar or something. No, <laughs> to, 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 in order to rob a bank or whatever, right. whatever the storyline is. So they're, they're, they serve very different purposes to, to what I'd say daytime soaps. There are some daytime soaps in the UK, but they and they are as, as sort of frothy as American soaps can be, but the English... You know, continuing drama because they people who make soaps don't ever refer to them as soaps. Uh, <laughs> they hate that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But the continuing dramas in in the UK are, are they so they do have these very specific remits, and that's sort of why they are as popular. And and, and you know, in terms of TV awards and, and, and viewing figures, Coronation Street and EastEnders are the most watched TV programs in the UK. Yeah. You know, and The Archers is in f- regularly the most one of the most listened to radio shows. So people have a real investment in those communities, even if they they either feel like they are in those communities or they want to be in those communities. Although, what is interesting is that Archers fans worry that the Archers is becoming too much like EastEnders, and you know, they, so there's a kind of they, they look down upon each other a little bit as well. There's a rivalry there as well. They're selling out. Yeah, it's it's funny because I I can't imagine Dot Cotton or, or somebody like that sort yeah. of featuring in a, in a sort of US so where everybody's sort of very pristine looking and it's it's all about the from television but uh, no less uh, sticking with uh, sort of very much a spectacle um, here today it's uh, it's bonfire night yeah and uh, I, uh, I you obviously do cover that in the book and in fact the, the history of uh, bonfire night very very well mm. it uh, even got me thinking and, and remembering the true story of, of bonfire night in fact Funnily enough, every year I have this joke on my blog where I say to my British readers, happy bonfire night. Yeah. To my American readers, happy V for Vendetta Day. <laughs> um, it's, it's how they might, um, you know, might sort of relate to it. Yeah. Um, what, what are your, your sort of, your memories of, of, uh, of bonfire night growing up? Because I think that's the most special time yeah. to, to enjoy it. And also, yeah, go ahead and just give us a, a bit of a history uh, behind Guy Fawkes specifically. Well, the in- the interesting thing about Bonfire Night is, if you had to explain it from an American perspective, it has elements of nine eleven because it's about thwarted terror plot. It has elements of the Fourth of July because it's our fireworks night, 
and it, it, it has elements of Halloween because the original Halloween had a massive bonfire in it. And when, when this terror plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament was thwarted and there was a, a national decree that there needed to be bonfires lit to celebrate the, 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 um, the life of the king, which I should say, that order wasn't rescinded for another 150 years. Mm. It lasted well into the Victorian era that every, everybody had to light bonfires to celebrate the thwarting of this plot. And it's all rooted in, in uh, the, the power struggle between the, the Protestant uh, leaders and the Catholic, uh, the people who had been in charge of Nibla before. It's a power struggle about Catholics and Protestants. So it, it's, it's got the undertow of sectarian violence, the greatest story ever told. Um, and yet, all of that is kind of lost in because it's a repetitive event that happens every year on November the 5th. What gets lost is, is it, apart from knowing that it's about a guy called Guy Fawkes who tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, what we're actually remembering is I stood in a cold place looking at the mm. sky. My feet were cold. <laughs> my mum and dad were nearby. I, went, I, I probably had a hot dog or possibly... I mean, and the, these are British hot dogs. This yeah. is a sausage in a bun. Mm -hmm. This is not a hot dog, <laughs> yeah, as you would hot understand dog. hot dogs. Right? <laughs> it's uh, not. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. And, uh, and, or possibly you bake a baked potato. And and the fireworks went off and I, I went, ooh, and it was exciting. And there may have been a, an effigy on top of the fire, on top of the bonfire, although that's not, I think that's dying out as a thing on every bonfire. Certainly there are places that still burn effigies and, and you know, I understand that this year's one in, in Brighton where they always burn an effigy is going to be Set Blatter, the, the, the head of FIFA, <laughs> so I, which I quite enjoy as a... As a I mean, pre, previous ones have been Simon Cowell or, you know, the, the political right. figures or whatever. I feel it's like that's when we were there. With Simon Cowell? Yeah, I remember oh, okay. that happening. Uh -huh. Well, he's, he's sort of <laughs> been that figure of hate for about 15 years. Well, now. he's still... Yeah. No, I'm sorry. He's not a figure of hate anymore because, you know, the shirt all the way down to the navel open. Yeah, it's very and the beard. Yeah. Well, he's, very sexy. He, re he represents a very different a tradition, which is the, the great British skull. So mm. he's the guy. He's one of the guys. Him and Gordon Ramsay. And, yep. and you know, yes. they go around the world and they tell everybody off. Oh, yeah. And that sure. they're angry about how stupid everybody is. That's, yeah. that's the great British skull. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so um, that's Bonfire Night really is, is uh, and it's entirely different sense memory from what the 4th of July must be because it's cold and it happens, and it, it happens uh, you know, in winter, in the midst of winter. So for, for either it's raining and you don't really get to see the fireworks or it's, it's a beautiful starlit night. But yeah. really cold, and you—I mean, yeah. you'll remember as well that whole thing about you looking up and you can see your own breath in front of your eyes while the fireworks are going yeah. off. And you know, you do spark if you do sparklers on a freezing cold night, it's entirely different to doing them on a warm night. It's true, and there's a sort of a, a November magic to that. Something that sort of you, you take in the British air and you smell the the fireworks and all that. Um, and and you said in the book that the the idea that the the kids. Um, say on the street or any particular sort of venue they you they used to when we were growing up have the sort of the guy and they'd say penny for the guy yeah and uh and and that is sort of moving out of, of british uh, uh sort of the activities we do now i think there are a lot of things that children used to do that were a product of having a lot of time in your hand on your hands and uh, they no longer have a lot of time on their hands also the, the possibility of to roam the streets you know without parental supervision which you can't do anymore. No, yeah. you know, people, children are in, in, you know, looked after a lot more because we are terrified of what might happen to them. So you've got two situations going on at once that prevent them from doing penny for the guy because 
you've either got you're either one of those parents that likes to enable these fine traditions and make them make them happen uh in which case your children are rolling their eyes and going i don't want to do this dad it's embarrassing <laughs> or you know you're the kind of parent that doesn't care that your children are walking around the streets effectively begging for money yeah. and you know in which, and if they're going to do that they probably won't bother making a guy uh, in order to do it so that's partly the reason why these things are dying out i mean it, there are all sorts of uh, playground games that are also dying out because of handheld gaming and electrical devices that and, and you know that were coming in when i was still at school in the in the in the early 80s and they've, they've, they've obviously as things have progressed and people don't play conkers as much children don't play conkers they they hand over the myth of conkers from their parents but they don't really play conkers um if anyone doesn't know what conkers is by the way it's it's a game in which uh a horse chestnut, so a nut that looks like a, a chestnut, but it is a, a horse chestnut, is suspended from a bootlace, and then somebody else has another one on a bootlace that they swing at the first one and they try and smash it. That's essentially the game. And again, you can tell it's the product of having too much time on your hands, and you only have a certain amount of, of things with which you can make games or make your own fun. So if you've got horse chestnuts on the ground, you have a shoelace, you're fine, That's then you, then you can do it. But that, that these things are fine old British traditions which are no longer you know upheld by the people who are supposed to want to do them children and mm -hmm. they are upheld by parents that think that people should pay conkers right so right. there's a there's a, a British conquer championship and that was won <laughs> by a man with a white beard oh, it's <laughs> weird. and there's something really weird about that but brilliant yeah. but weird there is well, something quite British about it yeah, it sounds like yeah. Well, so if you were to get uh, injured uh, by a conker or any other <laughs> sort of thing, um, we obviously in England have our very beloved but uh, uh, polarizing NHS. Mm. Um, now, living here in in the US, I've I've dealt many a time with the um, American healthcare system, mm. and uh, often it's been asked of me, um, you know, what the NHS really is like, and and how it came about, and all of that. Uh, how how would you sort of best uh, explain that? I, I think there is a misnomer around the NHS where people are keen to define it as being some form of socialist, you know, folly. And I think that's interesting, but it's entirely flawed. The only way to view the NHS is a product of an entire generation's effort during the Second World War. So you, you have an, a country that was fighting off the potential threat of invasion from the Germans who had who had invaded all of Europe and, and the Channel Islands, Jersey and Guernsey. So there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't invade the UK. And, and the UK was the last bastion of hope in Europe against the German you know, empire building. And they were going into Russia at the same time. So they, who knows where they could go. We're going to take over the entire world. Um, and Britain had, was decimated by bombings and, and you know, that there were parents sending their children out of cities to go and live in the countryside with total strangers in order to keep them safe you know that's how desperate things got parents sent their children to live with people they don't even know on the in the hope that those children would come back alive rather than blown up those are the, those are the bleak choices that that generation had to face and at the end of the war when everything happened and america came in to to, to assist with the you know the, the invasion of Europe and everything else, which is all true, and it's it's important to, to acknowledge. Um, England had to put itself back together. Britain had to put itself back together, and there was absolutely no way that it could put itself back together in the same way that it had been before, with all of the class distinctions, with the ruling class at the top, and with working classes at the bottom just going back to whatever jobs they'd had before. The whole country needed to be rebuilt from the ground up, and as it was re, and at that point. Everybody had been pulling together for over six years 
to keep Britain from being overtaken. So they have to, and when so you start to examine things like healthcare or or anything like that, that's why the government was that was voted in immediately after the war was a left wing government that was looking to set up the welfare state, was looking to say, okay, well, you know, the government can help you build your life. It can help you with your health. It can help you with your career. It can help you with your family. It can help you with your housing. It can help you because you have given everything. You've given members of your family. You've given your children. You've given, you know, and, and it's, it's an, a complete lie to say that this is the, the NHS is a socialist myth. Mm. What it is is a country that has to pull itself together. The only way it can do it is by all working together in the same way. And, you know, and, and that's, that's just how it came into being. Since it came into being in 1945, what you have is a whole, whole generations of people who were born into the NHS, who's had their lives saved by the NHS, who've had their limbs saved by the NHS, who've had fa family members who've had their lives saved, who, and also who've had people who've died within the NHS but have been looked after by NHS nurses and NHS doctors. and So all of these are hugely emotive topics. These are... These are these cut to the core of, of who we are as people and what we, we like. So, you know, it starts with the moment of supreme sacrifice and it continues with people at their uh, living through experiences at their absolute worst. I personally wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the NHS. I had a really bad car accident in the year 2000. I nearly died and uh, the NHS put me back together and mm. I, I can walk now I, at some point they were going to amputate one of my legs you know there's a there's a whole history about that which we don't need to go into but it, it just kind of and that's how people feel that yeah. generally not all people right but people love the NHS because it looks after them yeah and I think a lot of people in the United States have a misconception about the NHS because you have people on one side of the debate here um, that say that we need to have a system that's similar to yours, and then mm. we have other people on the other side of the debate saying absolutely no, and there are people in the UK who agree with us that we sh that they shouldn't have it anymore. Mm. Um, and I, I get confused because um, I hear people like David Cameron, you know, tout the benefits yeah. of the NHS despite his conservative leaning. Yeah. And so can you speak to that a little bit? If I was to be political at this point, I would say that David Cameron is saying those things because that is a popular opinion with the voters. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what he's actually doing is uh, strip mining the assets of the NHS and selling them off for private gain. So it is difficult to understand David Cameron's rhetoric about the NHS because it is specious, mm -hmm. I think. You know, because his actions, the actions of his government do not follow the words that he is using. We, the NHS is safe in our hands, the Conservative Party say. And, you know, but it's in, what they'll always go on about is inefficiency, about middle management, about how it needs everything, you know, everything could be more efficient. As, as if healthcare is something that can be measured in, in terms of total efficiency. Mm. You know, and it, it, it's a very difficult situation because ultimately I, I am, I am, adult enough and sensible enough to realize that nothing is above criticism nothing you know can't be streamlined there isn't anything that can't be made better you know but i do know that you can't make you can't make a, a health service better by expecting doctors to work harder mm -hmm. i know that because they won't they what they'll do is work worse mm -hmm. and it's the same with you know it works the same way on any any essential service like teaching or you know the the, the, the emergency services or any of that once you start saying we need to make cuts, we need to be more efficient, 
somehow it always seems to be the people that do the thing that is the most important thing that needs doing have to work harder to do and they're the ones that are doing these the, providing these essential services so it is difficult from the outside to understand because you're looking at a man talking about the NHS and saying it's a wonderful thing um, whilst being a, ostensibly of a conservative and therefore agreeing with people that think the NHS shouldn't exist but I don't believe that people there are a lot of people in the conservative party that definitely don't believe the nhs should exist and they are acting as if the best way to treat the nhs is to sell it off as, as a you know with as strip mine its assets and sell them to the private sector and and that's and they'll do it stealthily because popular because the popular vote is behind the nhs there are campaigns to save the nhs and it's it, you know mm. and so the f my first answer was about the popular support for the nhs and where that came from my second answer is about what politicians are doing to that now and it's it's an, it's an interesting time I, I'm, by interesting I mean terrifying right <laughs> yes yeah, I was about to say but on, on the subject of the, the, the popular notion of the NHS seems to speak to this idea that most British people and by the way I like the way you you made that distinction at the beginning of the book that the things in this book might not be absolutely true to every single person of in England because, and I know from writing on the blog, you'll get the odd commenter, sometimes very odd commenter, <laughs> uh, respond with, well, this doesn't apply to me. But with the NHS, um, is it, do you think it's fair to say that people will, will grumble about it and all of that, but they wouldn't want to live without it? Well, no, exactly. And, and, and what I've, well, I think what I've said in the book is the NHS, they grumble about it in the way that you grumble about your own parents. You'll grumble about family members. You're, you're allowed to criticise your own family members because you know them so well, but you also love them. And, and, and there's that intimate relationship. And I think, yes, there are things about the NHS that are, that are frustrating. And it's not, it's not always a perfect service, but it is, the, it is our service. And, and, I, and I think that's, where, that's, that's how it feels like the, the best way to summarise the support for you know, the, that way of providing health. And to know that it, whoever you are, if you if you are struck by something and it seems to be important to say that isn't your fault although it's sometimes it's not important to make that distinction if you're struck by something that that renders you in need of assistance medically you can be assisted there isn't a reason to not do that that is based on money mm -hmm. and that seems an, a, a wonderful thing to aspire to as a society mm -hmm. and i'm happy about that and so lightening the mood uh, somewhat, <laughs> uh, and bringing it back around to actually, I guess, the present day. Um, now, you've been in Indiana, what, for now two days? Yes, yes, yeah. I know it very well now. Okay. <laughs> so, so, the, so the title of your book is Stuff Brits Like. What, yes. what do you like about Indiana? So I far? like, well, I like odd little things. I've, I've noticed uh, that in the, the electrical poles in Broad Ripple, which is where I've been staying, are riddled with staples, and all those staples have been because people have put up flyers for lost cats and, and music shows they're putting on, or whatever it is. And that doesn't happen so much in Britain. There are telegraph poles in Britain. Some people, there are the occasional staple. It doesn't, I'm not saying it never happens, but it, there is never that forest of staples, and certainly they don't get rid of the flyers by setting fire to the pole. <laughs> so there are these poles which are black and charred, and they've got knackered staples all over them, and, and, and they look like a an art project designed to tell the history of the social history of an area by saying look lots of things have happened here each one is represented by a staple that says there was a show here someone lost their cat all of these things happened here and it's and that so I was staring at that for about 10 minutes and I was taking a photograph of it and I had to 
I, I was explaining it to someone and they were kind of laughing and thinking, well, that's really odd to pick up on that. But the geography of the streets is different to, to where I live. And that's often what you want to see in a different place. You know, and it isn't just that British houses don't have post boxes at the end of the garden. They have they have front doors with post box post letter boxes in the people post the letters through the door although that is a thing and i have been looking at the post boxes and going look at the post boxes <laughs> um, you know there's all sorts of stuff like that like just you just notice these minor differences you know and, and kind of and thrilling in that because obviously it, it's an, it's wonderful to see a different a different the way that a, a community arranges itself well Fraser, it's been wonderful having you on. Uh, we've come to the end of the show. Oh, thank um, you very much. But yes, uh, to anybody who is, and I imagine that's most people listening, interested in British stuff, go and buy stuff Brits like today. You can get it at Amazon.com and also I believe at Barnes & Noble or at Select Barnes & Nobles. Is that yes, it's available at Barnes & Nobles in the local area. Great. All right. Well, um, what I would just finish uh, by saying is I could talk about this book all day. It really is that good and that comprehensive. Thank you very um, much. And so, yeah, definitely go out and buy it. But that's all for this week. Join us next week when we'll talk about something different. Oh, and by the way, before he turns that off, post boxes or mailboxes? Mm-hmm.